thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Join the conversation. You're with Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist joins us on the line from the UK. Dr. Chris Smith, it's good to have you back. Well, I'm, I'm well, really excited I'm because really, I'm going to be on South African soil pretty soon, as in on Wednesday in Cape Town next week. I think we're going to do a gig, aren't we, on, on Wednesday evening, which will be very exciting. More details to come. And um, I'll be in Durban the rest of the week because we're running the bio convention there. And we're going to hopefully uh, provide some insights into how early career scientists from South Africa and, and the African continent can do better science communication and perhaps even win the chance to come and work on the Naked Scientist for two months in the UK. Very exciting week. Absolutely. And and related matters are firming up. Uh, and we want to share it with you, maybe create an opportunity for you to come and join in and be part of a physical kind of interaction with the naked side. We don't get to see him often enough, and this is an opportunity uh, that comes very, very rarely. You want to be there. Uh, but we have a couple of voice notes. Let's, let's go there, Joe. Let's take a listen. Let's see which, we, which ones we can tick off in this half hour. Hi, good morning, Dr. Chris. It's Jill speaking. Um, why does my nose always itch when I brush my teeth? <laughs> I have had something similar. I find that certain flavours of toothpaste make me sneeze, and I think it's because they've got menthol or something like it, those sorts of minty flavours. And I think that the minty flavours are irritant to my nose and they make my nose run. And that makes me sneeze. But it could also be that if your nose runs a little bit, it irritates the fine nerves on the linings of your nose and makes you want to sneeze because sneezing as a reflex is triggered by the perception that there is something in your nose lining that could be a foreign body or an infection or something trying to crawl in there and you sneeze to clear it. And your own tears and your own runny nose could fool your nose into thinking that. So I suspect that is what is going on in both you and me. Thank you, Jill, for that question. Another voice note. Uh, good morning, um, Clarence, and to Dr. Christmas there. Uh, this is Flores from the from Booster. Lester, what I would like to know from the naked scientist is why can I kick a soccer ball very strong with both my feet, but when I play cricket or um, golf, then I cannot hit it with my right hand. The club and the cricket bat, I have to hold it. I need to use left-handed uh, uh, golf clubs and a cricket bat. I'm always betting. I'm always a left-handed uh, uh, batsman. But I've noticed that some people can write left-handed and then they cannot hit the ball with their left foot and are strong on their right foot. Why is that? Have a good job, uh, <laughs> this is a great question and it's one of those mysteries really at the root of this that uh, we can't answer at the moment which is why are 90% of the population right-handed why are 10% of the population left-handed we appear to be exclusive 
in the animal kingdom at doing this. There are a handful of examples of animals that might have a side bias, but we are the most pronounced, biggest handedness bias of any animal population. And while you do find animals out there that are handed or finned, in other words, an animal may choose preferentially all the time to use one particular paw or hand or fin or whatever when it's doing particular movements, you don't find the same population level. So it's more like 50-50 in a population of right-handers and left-handers rather than 90% of the whole population use one particular hand. Why we have this crossed-over nervous system in this way, we really don't know. Whether it's because of the way that the brain develops, one theory is because of the way the nervous system develops, everything starts off connected to its own side of the body and as our embryo develops to turn into a, a developing baby, everything rotates and the twist puts things that were on the right on the left. And that may explain why we have a crossed system. But that that's just then the right side of your brain controlling your left and your left controlling your right. But it doesn't explain why you've got this dominance effect. And so when it comes to handedness, we tend to have one hand that we favour very strongly and because we favour using it, we do more with it and we therefore become much more practised at doing it. Legs, there is a, a smaller territory in the brain devoted to controlling legs and leg movements because we don't make the same fine skilled manipulative movements with our legs and feet and toes as we do with our hands. So it could be that in the case that's being asked here that because the act of kicking is just a grosser movement and it's easier to refine, that this person has not had problems refining quite good kicking movements with both right and left. But fine, dexterous, manipulative movements of fingers, for example, that does have a really strong hand bias. And when you're doing things with a bat or a club, those require really quite accurate, fine movements in order to get the right movement to hit the ball the way you want it to go. So I suspect that's where the hand dominance effect kicks in, superimposed with practice on top of that. The more you do something, the better you get, and therefore the more entrenched it becomes and the more comfortable you, you become using that particular part of your body. Shireen has used that number. So let's go to Shireen first. Uh, welcome, Shireen. Morning, Clarence. Um, morning, um, Doc. I just want to find out, I've been watching the people um, in Maui looking um, for the bodies in all that burning. But now I want to find out it must reach a stage whereby the body is burnt beyond repairs or beyond sniffing for the dog. Does that happen? Or can the dogs smell the ashes? Dogs have an amazing sense of smell, possibly 100,000 plus times better than our own. They can detect tiny traces of things and they can be trained to become really, really very good at finding those smells at vanishingly small concentrations. There's dogs, for example, that are medical sniffer dogs and even drug detection dogs at airports, for example, which they can detect. I saw one experiment where a person put a tiny trace from a swab that had been on a patient who had C. diff, the hospital superbug that causes diarrhoea, for example. They put a tiny trace of that person's faeces in a pot on the other side of a field and Cliff, the sniffer dog for C. diff, still tracked it down, no problem. So dogs have an exquisite sense of smell that we just can't comprehend. We live in a visual world. Dogs have the smell equivalent of how good your colour vision is. Um, humans have really, really good vision compared to a dog. So it's sort of roles are reversed. They have a nose, we have eyes. And they can be trained to find a whole repertoire of different smells. And so 
they will be extremely good. It's very hard to render something undetectable to a dog because even the most intense fire, unless it's really, really, really hot and capable of completely incinerating a body like a crematorium down to just ash, it's it's going to leave residues which the dog in its training will have learned to detect. And dogs that are trained on... Uh, Finding fire victims, for example, will have encountered all the different smells and the derivative smells of people who are fire victims. So I think they will be very, very good at finding the individuals. But again, you can never say never. And there will be some circumstances where fires are just so hot that there is almost nothing left to find. You're right. And under those circumstances, obviously, um, the situation is different. Thank you, Shireen, for your call. Leon's on the line from Athlone uh, and a question that keeps him awake at night. Leon, go ahead. <laughs> thank you, Clarence Ford. Uh, yes, I hope you're well, sir. Always, thank you. Clarence Ford, I've noticed now recently, man, the electrical cords, extension leads, all of a sudden, Clarence, they appear not. I would love to know, how is that possible? <laughs> the reason for this is that if you think about how many ways there are to arrange where the cable is in three-dimensional space. We like it in a nice straight line, but that's just one possibility of all of the ways you could manipulate, move or position the cable. Second thing, so that's a probability-based answer, the second thing is, how do we tend to put the cable away? Well, coiled-up cables take a lot less space than cables that are just left in a long line, and coiled-up cables are also in a more organised fashion, but they've also got a twist in them. So as you coil up the cable, what we tend to do, often by accident, is that we'll drop one coil through another coil. And then, when we pull the cable out, because we're lazy and we very quickly just pull it out of the coil where we've looped it all together, because one coil's gone through the middle of another one, that is a knot. So there are enormous numbers of ways to organise the cable so that it falls through itself and forms knots. There's only one way of organising the cable, so it's a nice straight line. So the bottom line is, it's because of the way we put the cable away, as we coil it up, we put a twist into it, which makes it more likely to twist into a knot. And secondly, the loops fall through each other and that ties a knot in the cable physically. And those are much more likely to happen because there's so many possibilities for that to happen compared to the one possibility of a nice, straight, organised, unknotted cable. Then we have a question, N. You were talking about sight and human sight and I've just lost that. Thank you uh, to Joseph. And find it again. But the question was, um, if I remember correctly, it was about people with bigger eyes. Do they have better peripheral vision? That was the question. Well, human eyes are pretty standard. They form to a certain size and shape within the realms of difference between individuals. So there's a bit of difference. And some people's eyeballs are a bit too long. That's called astigmatism. And this can cause blurry vision. But most people's eyes are the same shape. Babies' eyes look bigger than they are because the eye relative to the shape of their head has uh, is is bigger but obviously as they grow then the proportions reset so most people's eyes are within a fairly narrow set of confines as to to standard size and shape so most people do actually have equivalently good vision and equivalently good peripheral vision all other considerations like short sight long sight 
other issues with the eyes taken into account. There are some exceptions and there are some populations on Earth who have evolved to have better vision under certain circumstances because those populations have lived in certain environments which have put significant pressure on the development of good eyesight and the reliance on good eyesight. And there's even people who go diving in the sea to retrieve pearls and things, so-called pearl divers. And these individuals have the ability to see much better underwater than individuals who don't do that and haven't grown up over generations in that particular way of life. And this is because they have the ability to focus their eyes to compensate for the extreme focusing effect of the water. So they allegedly do see better underwater than the average person. But in terms of peripheral vision, no, I don't think there's any difference in the retina of a person who has good peripheral vision versus anyone else. I think everyone's got a similar pattern in their retina and the light just comes in through your pupil and is then able to stimulate all the different parts of the retina and therefore there is no evidence that that populations have better or worse peripheral vision on average across the world. Let's go to the voice notes. They're stacking up on that side, Joe. Morning, Clarence, Dr. Chris. So my question is as follows. When a shot has been fired out of a pistol, a revolver, a rifle, why is the recoil always upward and not downward? Uh, I'm curious as to why that happens. Right, okay. So what's being referred to here is that when you pull the trigger and the gun goes off, a detonation is happening in the front part of the gun, which is increasing the pressure in the barrel of the gun massively and that pressure increase pushes the load the charge out of the gun in the direction of where the pressure's lowest well it can't go back into you thank goodness because the back of the gun is there and the end of the barrel is low pressure so the slug or whatever you've got in there goes flying out of the gun towards the area of low pressure propelled by the high pressure behind it now when you hold a gun if you think about how you're holding it and how it's being held by you it's actually braced against your body in such a way that the most likely uh, way in which the force is going to articulate with the gun against you or your hand isn't side to side because that's rigid it is going to be up and down because that is the degree of freedom where you have the least control now most people are holding a rifle with their hand coming from underneath and the butt of the gun into their shoulder, which means that the most likely direction it can move unopposed is upwards. A revolver, you've got your wrist locked, you've probably got a second hand clenched around the uh, base of the gun from your other non-dominant hand to support it. So again, the direction that's going to be most likely to uh, be free is the upward direction. So there will be a kick because of the uh, Newton's third law. If you push on the bullets or something coming out of the gun in one direction, they're going to push back on you just as hard as the bullets are, are being pushed out of the gun. And some of that force is therefore going to be unopposed in the upwards direction, so the gun is going to kick upwards a bit, but hopefully not too much to the left and right. Let's go to another voice note, Joe. Good morning, Claddy and Dr. Smith. What is the purpose of those black dots on car windows, especially around the windscreens? Thank you. Great question, and I and I know the answer to this because I had a chip in my windscreen recently because uh, I don't know if anyone's had the misfortune of driving on Britain's roads recently, but uh, we're doing a very, 
very good impression of world's worst road uh, because our roads are more potholes than roads. You have to drive round the potholes to find the road that's left. Loads of stones are flying up, loads of chips in windscreens. So when the man from the re- uh, windscreen repair company came to fix my chip in my windscreen for me, we got talking and I said, what's all this round the edge of the screen? Why are there these patterns of black dots? And he said, that, Chris, is a special paint that we put on which interrupts the sunlight from getting at the seal which is round your windscreen which is the the glue and the rubber which seals the windscreen into the front of your car because if the sunlight fell on that unopposed the ultraviolet in the sunlight would degrade the rubber and the material making it weak and crack and leak and the windscreen fall out so it is and it looks attractive but it's there to interrupt sunlight UV so that you don't have your windscreen rotting out of your car. Right. That's an interesting question. I wonder why sometimes I don't have these kind of questions. Um, we're learning so much with the Naked Scientist. Through Good morning, Clarence. Yes, uh, Dave During from Cape Town. A uh, question for the Naked Scientist. When one sees somebody yawn sort of in close proximity maybe, it seems to spark off a yawn from yourself or somebody else. And I just wondered perhaps what the cause was that, for that was. Um, is it a sound wave or is it something else? Thanks very much. This is called contagious yawning. And it is very common. It's ubiquitous. And people have done various experiments on this. And there are a number of things that are postulated as to why it happens. We tend to yawn when we're tired. Everyone knows that. Or bored or in danger of nodding off. It's associated with a high brain temperature and a higher brain temperature tends to happen when we're fatigued and people have done studies where they've got people to hold cold compresses onto their head for example and this suppresses the rate of contagious yawning. On the other hand in experiments people have asked students who have been shown videos of people yawning to make them yawn to breathe only through their mouth, no air going up the nose and this makes the yawning happen more because you've got less cool air going up your nose to cool down your brain so the theory goes that you contagiously yawn because in our evolutionary past if one person's nodding off and and uh, that that may be because um they've been up all day or whatever and you then catch the yawn if they're tired it's likely you're tired and if all of you are sitting there feeling tired and likely to nod off at the same time the group vigilance, the number of eyes who are looking for danger approaching, drops. So everyone would fall asleep and everyone could become an enemy or a wild animal's dinner. So if you make everybody yawn, it pushes more cold air up everyone's nose, cooling everyone's fatigued and therefore overheated brain, and that has an enlivening or arousing effect, keeping everyone awake and at least some people more awake than others, we hope, so that someone's eyes and ears are working so that danger can be detected and a warning given before everyone becomes someone's dinner. And another voice note. Ah, good morning, Clarence and Dr. Christmas. Uh, it's Jason here from Brackenfell. Quick question. Um, with, for example, the Hiroshima, Hiroshima bomb, um, I, I obviously created uh, shadows of people that were there. What actually happens? What? How do we literally just get vaporized? And also, how do those shadows get burnt onto a wall, for example? I'm just curious. Thank you for a great show. Morning, and thanks for the kind words. 
We actually made a, an episode of the Naked Scientist podcast recently on the anniversary of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. So if you go to nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast and, and you can find that program there. And we did discuss some aspects of, of how nukes work. The bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were fission bombs. We've since gone on to make much more powerful, more devastating fusion or H-bombs. But I'll focus on, on the fission to start with. And th those essentially work the same way, which is you have a threshold amount of radioactive material inside the bomb, which when allowed to get very close together, produces a fission reaction in the same way as we have a fission reaction going on in a nuclear power station to literally split atoms and release energy. And the amount of energy that you release is huge. And it's so huge that it superheats the air around itself so you get a thermal effect, but you also produce enormous amounts of heat radiation, blinding white flash. And in that program I mentioned, we interviewed one of the survivors, he's still with us, who was on the ships that were down in the South Pacific watching the atomic bomb tests that happened in the 1950s. And he said that it was so bright that even with their fists in their eye sockets, he and his colleagues standing on the beach that day could see all the bones in their hands because of the bright light coming through. So you have an intense flash, enormous amounts of energy, light energy are released. This has the effect of radiating, irradiating with intense light, everything on the surface under the bomb at that moment. And then the superheated air as a shockwave comes through. So having been zapped once by the light that hits you from the bomb going off and light travels obviously very very quickly you then get a delay before the ferociously hot air which has been superheated by the bomb going off hits you and that burns you to a cinder so there are effectively two effects going on you get the immediate light flash and then you get the shock wave with the superheated air coming through and this has the effect of of burning some things incinerating some things but also the wind it creates is also going to blow some things over and, and the man I spoke about was standing on the beach that day he said that when that arrived and they were 15 miles away 20 kilometers away from where the blast was detonated it knocked some of the men off their feet on the beach and the light itself can that kill you as well well this is radiation so there's going to be intense amounts of heat because light is energy and some of that light is going to hit you if you're in its path and therefore it's going to deposit the energy of the bright light in you and if you just imagine when you've if you've ever acted or been on stage and they spotlight you think how much heat you feel just from one single sort of one kilowatt spotlight and imagine that magnified thousands of times hitting you and that light energy is all being dumped into your body and that's not radiation like we tend to think of radiation as that's light electromagnetic radiation and it puts enormous heat through you so yes the light itself can zap you and if you survive that then you get zapped by and, and included in that light i shouldn't make belittle this there's also gamma and x-rays and, and those kind of things so they're, they're going to give you a radiation damage as well but then the heat that is the air around you coming through it's sort of similar to what happened to the people in pompeii the roman city that was um demolished by the eruption of Vesuvius back in AD 76, I think it was. And this is where a glowing cloud of superheated gas came down the side of the volcano, went through the city and raised the air temperature to three or 400 degrees Celsius in a matter of seconds. And it, and it literally boils everybody. 
We're going to have to wrap it there. Thank you very much, uh, The Naked Scientist. And watch out for communication about his presence here um, at our studios. And there's going to be an invitation for you to come and join in on that interaction. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.